We're not going to close in song today. We're going to close with me. But as I tell Joan, I'm essentially like a song, right? So <laughs> I would have preferred if that was a more feminine voice that responded with that. However, but uh, I'll have to live. <laughs> I'll have to live with that. Uh, listen, this is the last talk on defining the relationships. This is the last DTR talk. This has been deeply profound in my own life. I hope it has yours. I hope you're wrestling this with this material in your communities. Today, we are going to look at just one element of why it is incredibly practical that you understand correctly how God wants to relate to you. He does not want you to live under him so you got some kind of a cause and effect thing going with God. If I'm good, he blesses. If I'm bad, he curses. That's not it. He doesn't want you to just give away your life in service for him, just keep serving him because he's a tough taskmaster master. That's not what he's calling for. He's not saying to you in a world of scarcity that you should just go to him and consume things and get things and hoard things because that'll protect you. That's not what God is looking for. Uh, we've been looking at all these fake postures of relating to God, but the key has been and always will be the primary way we were called to, to relate to God is to live with God, not from him or under him or for him, but with him. I'm a child of the 70s. As a child of the 70s, um, I know you look at me and say that's hard to believe. As a child of the 70s, there are certain things that uh, if you are of my generation, we grew up with that are just radically different now. And I, many of you have seen these uh, on social media, but I, I came across one I wanted to share with you. To all the kids who survived the 70s and the 80s, he said, first we survived being bored to mothers who smoked and or drank while they carried us. That explains some of my issues, perhaps. They took aspirin. They ate blue cheese dressing. They ate tuna from a can, and they didn't get tested for diabetes. Then after all that trauma, when we were born, our baby cribs were covered with bright-colored lead-based paints. We had no child-proof libs on medicine bottles, doors, or cabinets. And when we rode our bikes, we had no helmets, not to mention the risks we took when we were hitchhiking. When's the last time you saw a hitchhiker? As children, we would ride in cars with no seat belts or airbags. In my family, it was a special treat when we were going on a long trip. We would argue over who could lay in that back window seat, right? We'd bring a pillow. That was like the place of honor was in that back area, which essentially made you a human missile should things go the wrong way. <laughs> we drank water from the garden hose, not from a bottle. We shared one soda with four friends from one bottle. No one actually died from this. We ate cupcakes and white bread and real butter. We drank Coke with real sugar in it, but we weren't overweight because we were always outside doing something. We would leave home and play all day as long as we were back when the streetlights came on. This one blows my kids' minds. No one was able to reach us all day. <laughs> Fathom that today, right? Your kid left and you didn't see him till it got dark and you weren't in a panic. We would spend hours building our go-karts out of scraps, and then we would ride them down a hill only to remember we forgot to put the brakes on. <laughs> After running to the bushes a few times, we learned how to solve the problem. We didn't have PlayStations or Xboxes or video games or 100 channels on cable or movies or Netflix or surround sound or cell phones or personal computers or internet or, or, or social media. We had friends, and we went out and we found them. We fell out of trees. We got cut. We broke bones and teeth. There were no lawsuits from these accidents. We ate, worms, we ate worms and mud pies made from dirt, and the worms did not live in us forever. 
We were actually given BB guns for our 10th birthdays. We made up games with sticks and tennis balls, and although we were told it would happen, we did not put out very many eyes. We rode bikes, we walked to friends' houses, we knocked on the door, we rang the bell, or we just walked in and we talked to them. Little League actually had tryouts, and not everybody made the team. <laughs> Those who didn't had to learn to deal with disappointment. Imagine that. The idea of, parent, of a parent bailing us out if we broke the law was unheard of. They actually sided with the law. Yet this generation, that generation, has produced some of the biggest risk takers, the best problem solvers and inventors ever. The past 50 years have been an explosion of innovation and new ideas. As a result, because of it, we have freedom and failure and success and responsibility, and we learn how to deal with it all. But something happened over the last 20 or 30 years. It's as if safety and security has become kind of like the, the, the demigod. For everything is focused on, I've just got to be careful. I'm so worried about so many things. And if I could just figure out ways to control all these things that I can't control, then I'll feel safe and secure. I worry about my kids. I worry about my retirement. I worry about my health. I worry about war. See, living life with God, and this is where religion comes from. All the religions that Brian and Michelle are facing over in Africa all come out of this fear. There's something at work in my life, even death, where I can't control it, so I'm going to create an illusion of control. I'm going to relate to God in a way that will make him do what I want him to do. It's an illusion. Life with God accepts that fact. You can't control God. We try to. We spend our lives trying to find some momentary peace. But no amount of control will ever be enough to fully remove the fears that you and I have. Yesterday, Joe and I were outside cleaning up. It's the end of the, end of the kind of summer season. We were putting, putting stuff away. You know, over time, you know, we just celebrated 25 years of marriage. Over time, you know, things, your possessions kind of build up. I like stuff. Amen. And uh, I'm putting my stuff away, my summer stuff, because now I have summer stuff and winter stuff and all the rest. So I'm putting my summer stuff away, which now includes a picnic table, you know, a nice table and some wicker furniture and cushions and a fire pit. I had to buy a $2,000 shed just to fit my summer stuff in outside. Because having this stuff gives me some sense of, of calm or security. It's almost as if I could get enough of it if I have enough things, especially money and resources, or maybe talent and degrees, if I can get enough stuff, then I don't need to be afraid anymore. I'll be able to take care of myself. See, Jesus told a story about a rich guy like this once. He said, this guy, he built real big sheds. He had lots of stuff, lots of grain. And he said to himself, as he filled up all his sheds, as he sought to control things that he couldn't, he said, soul, you have ample laid up for many years. Relax. Eat and drink and be merry. But Jesus said he didn't know that death that night was going to come for him. Spend all of our lives creating this illusion that if we just relate to the God the right way, everything will be fine for us and we can control what happens. Control is an illusion. So then what's the alternative? And how does living with God in a with God relational posture versus performing for God, 
How does a with God posture practically impact the way you and I live every day? Henry Nouwen is a uh, Dutch priest, a professor, and an author. He found the answer to this question when he went to see the Flying Rodlays. It was a trapeze uh, troupe from South Africa. And he relates the story of when he went to see them in this material I put down here on the communion table. This is, this is uh, his story. He said, the flying, the flying Rodlies are trapeze artists who perform in the German circus Simone Barum. We have a great picture we're going to put up here of, of the flyer. Now it said, when the circus came to Freiburg two years ago, my friend Franz and Rini invited me and my father to see the show. I'll never forget how enraptured I became when I first saw the Rodleys move through the air, flying and catching as elegant dancers. He said, the next day I returned to the circus to see them again, and I introduced myself to them as one of their greatest fans. They invited me to attend their practice sessions. They gave me free tickets. They asked me to dinner and suggested I travel with them for a week in the near future. I did, and we became good friends. Well, one day I was sitting with, with Rodley, the leader of the troop, in his caravan, and I was talking about flying. And he said, quote, as a flyer, church, listen to this. As a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. You see, the public might think that I'm the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in that long jump. Well, how's that work, I asked. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing, and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I simply have to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. Wait a minute, you do nothing, I said, surprised? Nothing, Rodley repeated. The worst thing the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrist, I might break them or he might break mine. That would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch, and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. The secret is that the flyer does nothing, and the catcher does everything. To more fully engage in the metaphor, Nowen was fitted with a harness and he ascended to trapeze himself. This 60-something former Yale and Harvard professor giggled as he flew. And like a child, after each descent to the net, he would ask to go up again and again, knowing he was safe, knowing he had no fear of heights or injury. It was just replaced with childhood joy. He said, if we're to take risks to be free in the air in life, we have to know there's a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. We're going to be saved. The great hero is the least visible. Trust the catcher. And so this is how related to God correctly impacts your life and mine on a real daily basis. So many of us are afraid of so many things. What's going to happen to my kids? What about my job? The economy is crashing. What about my marriage? What if he leaves me? What about my health? I have this new mole. <laughs> and so in order to alleviate those fears and to gain some control, we run around to all kinds of idols. We build bigger and bigger barns so we feel safer and safer. But in the end, control is only an illusion. But faith 
But faith, on the other hand, is the opposite of seeking control. Faith is the surrender of control. Surrendering control, finally finding some peace and some rest for our souls is only possible if you trust the catcher and you know you're going to be caught. In my marriage, I can only fully be loved. I can fully only enjoy the intimacy of the relationship as it was meant to be enjoyed if I trust in the love of my wife. If I don't, that relationship that with relationship, that intimacy will never be what it was fully meant to be. It's the same way with our relationship with God. John was the youngest um, of Jesus' apostles. And after having looked back on his life of serving Jesus and suffering uh, for the cause, he reflected on things and how he was able to live this way, how people like Brian and Michelle are able to live with such abandon. He looked back and he wrote these words to the church. In 1 John 4, he says, If anyone accepts that Jesus is the Son of God, then God lives in them. This is what Brian talked about. And so we know, we know, we know, and we rely on the love that God has for us. We rely on it. See, God is love. Whoever, is lo whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love's made complete amongst us so that we can have confidence, trust. We're fully sure on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. Rocky III is my favorite Rocky one. And... Uh, I don't know if you know it, but there's that scene, right, where, where Apollo is training Rocky, and Rocky's kind of washed up, and, and Apollo is beating on him, beating on him, beating on him, and he's going, what's the matter with you, Rock? What's the matter with you, Rock? It's kind of a stupid analogy for me, but it helps me, under, under, it helps me remember this. Rocky goes, tomorrow, and he starts yelling at him, there is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. Church, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. Can you imagine the kind of life that's available to you? Were, you? were you to live like a person with no fear? You have nothing to be afraid of? This is why to a people who lived relying on the land and crops and cattle and sheep, God continually refers to himself as a shepherd. He knows, like we know, that we live in a dangerous world. There's wolves and famine and sickness and storms that come into our lives and that we actually need one who would come and guide and protect us. To David, the writer of the Psalms, he says, I am your shepherd. Don't be afraid. And then Jesus comes on the scene and what does he call himself? In John chapter 10, he says, look, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, we pursue hired hands all the time. Medicine and doctors, I'm not saying we shouldn't do any of that. But those things are never going to, you know, 401k accounts and, and, and social security and all these other things in our lives. Intimacy with others. And here's what Jesus says about this. He goes, look, the hired hand isn't the shepherd. He doesn't own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. And the wolf attacks the flock and he scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and he doesn't care anything for the sheep. I, though, I, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me. And this, no, we talked about it, this is not book knowledge. 
This is intimacy, deep relational intimacy. I know them. They're with me. I'm with them. He knows me. He's with me. He loves me. I don't have to be so afraid. I could actually live a fear-free life. And when we get at this deep levels, the life with God posture, as opposed to all those others, all the other ways that you can try to relate to God, you can keep performing from him, you can keep trying to get from him so that you have enough to protect, you can keep trying to just work his principles without him. Those things at the end of the day, they only manage fears. Life with God eliminates fears. You have nothing to be afraid of. So, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What, what are you trying so hard to hold on to? What do you want to control? What's keeping you up at night? What is worrying you to death? And what would it look like to let it go and trust the catcher? Can you imagine a life lived with no fear, I mean, think about it. What would you do if you weren't so scared? Where would you go? What would you give away? How would you love? Who would you love? Who would you forgive? I mean, is it really possible? The things that Jesus said, are they really possible? Is it really possible to turn the other cheek after you've been smacked? Is it really possible to, to love my ex? To love my enemies? To give freely to anybody that asks, is that possible? Because in all those other relational postures of God, they're not because they're built on fear and control. It's only when we live with God and we experience him, we taste and see and start to believe in his goodness and his love, that the shadows break and these commands begin to make sense. If we truly believe we are eternally safe in the care of the good shepherd, we come to see the world as a safe place. I'm not, I don't have to be afraid of anything. I can, I can give rather than hoard. Because that's not what's going to protect me. I'm free to enjoy each day rather than worry about tomorrow. I'm free to forgive others rather than retaliate against them. I'm free to love the person determined to harm me. But all of it starts with faith in God's ever-present love and care for me. I'm so happy so many of you are studying this material as we've called it out of this book, With God. And he gives an example of what a with God life looks like. And I'm going to close with it because it's an example you know a little bit about. But it speaks in the book. He shares the story of Martin Luther King. And he says that on the night of January 27th, 1956, Martin Luther King heard two voices. It came during the Montgomery bus boycott. Most of us have heard about this and read about it in school. It had been started, as most of you know, by Rosa Parks. She was a 42-year-old African-American seamstress who had refused to give up her seat on the bus and, and move. And, and since she didn't, it started a, a big melee in town. And King, who, who lived in town, he was just 26 years old at the time. You realize that Martin Luther King was only 26 years old at the time. He wound up actually being reluctantly appointed president of this bus boycott. A position that he says, by his own admission, he didn't seek or desire. Quote, I didn't even have time to think about what was happening. If I had, I would have declined the nomination. Why? Because in Montgomery, Alabama in 1956, it wasn't too safe to be an uppity black guy. 
And so within days of being named president of the boycott movement, the hate mail and the calls began to flood into King. Quote, almost every day someone warned me that he had overheard white men making plans to get rid of me. And then came the first voice on that night of January 27th. It was a call that woke him up in the middle of the night. And in order not to offend anyone, I'm not going to use, uh, use the N-word here, but he was addressed with the N-word. Listen, he said, we're tired of your mess. If you're not out of town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. And so filled with fear, by his own admission, scared to death to the point of paralysis, he got out of bed and he went to the kitchen to grab a cup of coffee and prayed and began to try to figure out how he was going to get him and his young family out of town without just looking like a complete coward. And that's when he heard the second voice on January 27th, 1956. It was recorded, King, it was recorded in an interview um, in a book called Pilgrimage to the Mountaintop. Here's what Martin Luther King said the second voice said. It said, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, here's, I will be with you. Don't be afraid, even to the end of the world. The voice, quote, promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone, no, never alone, no, never alone. He promised to never leave me, never to leave me alone. These are the words of King. King knew the voice belonged to Jesus, and in that moment, his fear disappeared Although he had been raised in a religious home, although he had been theologically educated, he knew a lot about God. Although he had been trained as a minister, that night in his kitchen, King experienced God in a profoundly personal and intimate way. For the first time, he felt the reality of God with him. And King said the voice convinced him that I can stand up without fear. I can face anything. What are you so afraid of, Menem Hills? What is it keeping you from? And listen, relating to God in a with God posture does not mean your problems are going to go away and that the world is going to become a safe place. That wasn't King's experience. In fact, the caller was not lying. Four nights later, King's wife and two-month-old daughter were home when his house was bombed and set afire. Living a life with God does not mean your life is going to be safe as we know it in this world, but it will allow you peace and calm in a storm like you've never experienced. That night, King left and he came back to his house, and when he got there, hundreds of supporters were about to engage with the police in the town, and there was going to be a massive skirmish, and King walks into the melee, and he reminds those who had come that he who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. Hmm. Where did that come from? And then to the amazement of everyone, black and white alike, King told the mob, I want you to love your enemies and to be good to them, to love them and let, you know, let them know you love them. What we're doing is right, what we're doing is just, and God is with us. You can live this way. What would it be like if you could live a life free from fear? Where would you go? What would you give? How would you live? Who would you love? What could you forgive if you led a with God life? Now, you might say, and the book points out, John, this all sounds good, but you realize Martin Luther got a bullet in his head, right? I mean, heck, 
I don't think I want that to happen to me. So th this with God thing, I'm not sure it's really allaying my fears. Maybe I should just forget to turn the other cheek. Maybe I should go back to control and creating ways to make myself feel better. I, I like the illusion that things are going to be fine. Here's the key. I close with this. Here's the key. In order to live the way you were created to have a with God life, the first thing you have to understand is what we talked about last week. First and foremost, you will never experience it until God becomes your treasure. God is not, Jesus is not a way to some other thing for you. You will experience a with God life when he becomes the pearl of great price, when he becomes for you the treasure hidden in the field. This relationship that he's calling us to calls us to love him above everything else with our heart and our mind and our soul. If you treasure other things, if you treasure other things, let me say it one more time. If you treasure other things above living with God, even things like a long and comfortable life, you are not living with God, you are living in fear. If we're using God primarily as a means of attaining status or favor or longevity in the world, then you missed it. Second, when you live this way with God, in communion with God, in the with God life, once that life, that new life of Christ is hidden in you, the scriptures say, something happens. There's a new life that is created in you, the one that people saw in Africa with Brian, and it, it, it will never die. One of the things I get to do is counsel people that are dying, uh, and, and they come into my office, and I've, I've met a few of them over the last years, and, and so oftentimes we get so afraid. Here's the deal. When you leave the with God life, you will never die. An assassin's bullet doesn't end it. A Roman cross doesn't end it. For those of us who choose to live this way, eternity began for your soul, for your being, when you came to faith, and it will never cease. Your life is not dependent on a muscle beating in your chest or some electrical impulses in your brain. The with God life never ends. You have nothing to be afraid of. Jesus, the good shepherd, said, the sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. Ben, come on up. Jesus modeled this in the garden the night before. A human being, of course, but at the same time he said, saying, God, not my will, your will. Jesus models this on the cross where he says, into your hands do I commit my spirit. Catcher, here I come. I'll close with a personal story and, and what this has meant for me in the last few weeks. I've been studying this material a lot. It has been deeply moving and comforting to my spirit. I have a significant acid reflux problem to the point that um, several years ago, uh, I had it checked out and they ran all these tests and I had to drink this stuff and stand in a thing and they said, yeah, you've got a bad acid reflux problem. We need to get an endoscopy done for you because this could be an issue. So I got an endoscopy done and I woke up from the endoscopy in the office and the uh, the guy, I don't know why they give you your results when you're like half out of it because you can't really remember the results. I just remember him saying something akin to, yes, this is an issue for you. We're going to have to watch this. You need to go on this uh, acid reflux medicine and then you'll be okay. Well, I took the acid reflux medicine for a week or two and I started getting all these headaches and in typical John Eisman fashion, I said, ah, I'm sure I'll be fine. And uh, I stopped taking it. Had, had been experiencing, is the band not coming up here? <laughs> I, <laughs> I've been experiencing uh, a lot of problems with it over the last uh, couple of months, and 
Then about a month ago, two months ago, everything I ate started feeling like it got stuck in my chest, like to the point that it really hurt. Like one time Joan was like, do you want me to call the ambulance? Because was, everything was getting stuck. And I was sitting on the couch one night, I'm si- uh, and I did what you should never do, which is Google symptoms. <laughs> and uh, I Googled feeling of getting stuff caught in your chest, and the page just lit up esophageal cancer. You have esophageal cancer. Now, being a man of the world, I know that this is not something that you should do, and I probably don't have esophageal cancer. However, I was a little afraid, so I made an appointment with my doctor and went to see him immediately. When I got, when I got there, he looked at me and he said, boy, I haven't seen you in a long time. It's been quite a while since you had your test done. What's been going on? I said, well, you know, I went off that medicine, and I've got to tell you, I've been feeling recently like everything's getting stuck in my chest. And he looked at me, and with the worst bedside manner a doctor has ever had ever, he said, that's really serious. He said, we take that really serious. You need to get another test immediately. And then he started giving me the esophageal cancer checklist. Are you losing weight? Are you this? Are you that? And so I went home that night, and I didn't tell any of my kids. The only one I told was my wife. And, uh, you know, that night, I was pretty certain that I was in in trouble because it had been scary. And And I was walking around really bummed that I was, you know, I had screwed this up. And I got into bed that night, and, and I've been studying this with God material so much. This message just washed over me. And God just came to my soul, into my heart, and said, you're never going to die. It's all right. It doesn't matter what happens. Trust the catcher. Now, the truth is, I went and got another test done. Turns out I actually have an infection in my esophagus. I'm like a 90-year-old man. I'm taking 15 pills a day right now to uh, cure this infection. But the truth is, it wouldn't have mattered the way that test came back because I had nothing to fear. I was not going to die. Madam Hills, what are you afraid of? What's keeping you from letting it go and trusting the catcher and leading the with God life? I'm going to leave you with that thought, and I'm going to close and encourage you to think about joining that class that starts second service next week and finding out ways to experience God's presence in the here and the now. Instead of just knowing about him, you'll begin to actually know and experience him.